Good morning, New Hope family. Bill is singing this morning with the Vintage Gospel Lads in Sullivan, Indiana. The lads are in the area, of course, for the Red Hill Preaching Rally, which begins tonight at the Highland Church of Christ in Robinson. Uh, seems they were short a tenor, so they asked Bill to sing with them. Quite an honor, I'd think, for our preacher. And Andy is busy with CIY. It's tomorrow, right? Woohoo! And the many activities of a summer youth program, it preferred not to preach today. <clears throat> so you are left with a vintage third string preacher, but I'm pleased to fill in. <laughs> I've entitled my sermon, Four Convictions for Christ Followers, which of course is what we are. Have you ever thought about how much of life we give to preparing I mean, most of us spend 12 to 16 years preparing for life academically. Then for some careers, internships, residencies, apprenticeships, boot camps may be required. Athletes give much time and effort to conditioning and practice. Performing artists are constantly training and rehearsing. We rehearse for graduations, for weddings, other ceremonies. Even parents take childbirth classes when June or junior is on the way. So we try to prepare well so that when the moment of truth comes, whether on the job, in a contest, for a performance, or in advance of some crucial event of life, we will do well so that we can avoid the crisis of being unprepared and so we can pass the test and not embarrass ourselves. Well, truth is, anything worth doing or pursuing requires ample preparation. And that includes living faithfully for Jesus Christ as a Christ follower. Jesus advised in his watchful servant's parable in Luke 12, verse 35, be dressed and ready for service. Keep your lamps burning. In other words, be prepared. The Apostle Paul also urged preparation in Ephesians 6.13 saying, Put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And the Apostle Peter as well wrote in 1 Peter 3.15 saying, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope you have. In other words, be ready to speak for Jesus. Well, in my text today, Jesus addresses, I think, being prepared as his follower. The passage is Luke's last recorded post-resurrection appearance of Jesus in Luke 24, verses 44 through 49. But by way of background, the three-plus-year training program for Jesus' remaining 11 faithful disciples was nearly over. Their deep sorrow over his dreadful crucifixion had turned to great joy over his miraculous resurrection. They had seen him alive. They had touched him. He had ta even talked with him and eaten with him. And soon their master would ascend back to his father in heaven. Of course, that's not just the happy ending of the story. It was rather the beginning of the rest of the story. 
So in this post-resurrection appearance to his 11 disciples, Jesus, in essence, wrapped up their three-plus years of preparation, reiterated the main points of their disciple training program, and focused and launched their future ministry. He was entrusting to them the salvation of the world. To 11 ordinary, unschooled, and often clueless men, Jesus assigned the greatest mission ever conceived. In the words of Mark, chapter 16, verse 15, to go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. So please stand with me, if you will, for the reading of God's word. We stand out of regard and reverence for that word. Beginning in Luke 24, verse 44. Jesus said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, This is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Thank you. Be seated, please. So what were the key points of Jesus' preparation? I believe what he stressed with those 11, he also stresses with us. So in this text, Jesus emphasized that to be thoroughly prepared, his disciples must be solidly grounded upon and fully committed to four convictions. Number one, the reliability of the scriptures. Wow, what an extremely pertinent issue for Christians today. Generally in our culture, very few believe the Bible to be either relevant or reliable. Instead, most believe it to be grossly outdated and obsolete. Many believe it was written by a few eccentric Jews who lived in a drastically different antiquated time and culture. Many are aghast to think that it might be of any value today. Not long ago, I read about a lady who emailed NBC to raise a moral concern with some of their programming, if you can imagine that. She cited the Bible and the need to view the issue biblically. Well, a network emailer shot back saying that she should, quote, quit using that antiquated obsolete relic written by a few ancient religious fanatics and get a life and start thinking for yourself. Well, insulting for sure, but expressive of a widely held attitude. NBC rejected the Bible because of its origin and its antiquity. Although common, this view shows an amazing level of ignorance. Not only ignorance of the Bible and its content, 
but also of the enormous evidence supporting its integrity, that it is what it claims to be, the inspired Word of God. This view either ignores or patently refuses to acknowledge the massive manuscript evidence for its reliability, the extensive archaeological evidence for its accuracy, the abundance of historically fulfilled prophecies, the internal unity and consistency from Genesis to Revelation, and the existence of extra-biblical confirming sources. But for us Christians, the Bible's most important validation, it seems to me, is how our Lord and Master regarded the written word. Jesus never once questioned its historicity or reliability. He consistently treated it as totally accurate. He always spoke of it as being the word of God. And he constantly upheld its divine authority, asserting no less than 29 times as recorded by the four New Testament gospels, it is written. Therefore, to his disciples, Jesus said in verses 44 and 45 of our text, everything, everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. That is, by the way, in the entirety of the Hebrew scriptures, which of course is what we know today as the Old Testament. Then Jesus opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. At this point then, someone may justifiably ask, well, if Jesus was referring to the Old Testament, what about the New? When Jesus spoke these words, of course, there was no New Testament. The first New Testament book wasn't written until about 50 AD, which was about 20 years after the events of this passage. So, should we, should we treat the New Testament as Scripture, as Jesus did the Old? Well, the Apostle Peter helps us here in 2 Peter 3.16, where, referring to the letters of Paul that were in circulation at that time, he said, his, that is Paul's, letters contain some things that are hard to understand which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. So commenting on this verse, Christian author and pastor Charles Swindoll wrote, Peter clearly aligns Paul's writings with accepted scripture and saw those writings as a smaller set of a larger category that included the Old Testament scriptures. So based on this example of Peter's, that is apostolic acceptance of New Testament writings, we may be fully assured that both Old Testament and New Testament are Holy Scripture. And through the ages since, the church has upheld this view. So as our Lord took the scriptures, so should we, his followers. Living for Jesus means knowing and trusting the entire Bible. Living effectively as a Christ follower is impossible without a growing working knowledge of the Bible and an ongoing plan of personal Bible study and learning. This is essential preparation for living as a Christ follower. John Bunyan 
The renowned 17th century author of the Christian classic, Pilgrim's Progress, wrote in the cover of his personal Bible, either this book will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. The second conviction, the priority of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. So having referred to what was written of him in all three sections of the Hebrew Scriptures, that is our Old Testament, Jesus then said in verse 46, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. Of all of the Old Testament prophecies of Jesus that he might have cited at that time, for example, his identity as the Son of God, his virgin birth, his birthplace in Bethlehem, his future glorious kingdom, he chose to mention only these two momentous events, his death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave. Someone might well ask, why just these two? I think Jesus cited these two because these two are central. They are pivotal. They form the very centerpiece of God's plan for saving us lost sinners. And in fact, the entire Christian faith hangs on these two events. His death on the cross to pay for our sins and his resurrection from the grave to prove its sufficiency. If either of these events did not happen or can be proven false, then the Christian faith fails. It's a cruel hoax and a fraud. As the Apostle Paul put it in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. And we would say with him, perish the very thought. He also wrote in 1 Corinthians 15 verses 3 and 4, what I received I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised again on the third day according to the scriptures. So these two, his death and his resurrection, are of first priority. This means then that Jesus did not come to earth as the divine Son of God primarily to set examples for us to follow, or to impart moral and ethical teachings for us to live by although these he certainly did. But above all else, Jesus came to die for us and to be raised again. His death was required for the taking away of our sins and his resurrection was necessary to show that his death truly did pay for our sins and that he truly is who he said he was, the Christ, the life-giving Son of God who gave his life a ransom for many. Therefore, our faith rests solidly on Christ's sacrificial death on the cross as a payment for our sins and his bodily resurrection from the tomb as our hope for eternal life. Third then, another conviction, the necessity of telling others about Jesus. He went on to say to the 11 that day in verses 47 and 48, 
that repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You, he said, are witnesses of these things. So thorough preparation for following Jesus includes a strong devotion to telling others about him. In his book entitled Lifestyle Evangelism, Joseph Aldrich relates an old legend about Jesus' ascension to heaven after his time here on earth. The angel Gabriel, noting the marks of Jesus' suffering and death, exclaimed to him, Master, you must have suffered terribly for sinners down there. I did, said Jesus. And continued Gabriel, do they know all about how you love them and what you did for them? Oh no, said Jesus, not yet. Right now, only a handful of people around Jerusalem know. Gabriel was perplexed. Then what have you done to let everyone know about your love for them? Jesus replied, I've told Peter, James, John, and a few more friends to tell other people about me. Those who are told will in turn tell others, and my story will be spread to the farthest reaches of the earth. Ultimately, everyone will hear about my life and what I've done for them. But Gabriel was skeptical. He knew well what poor stuff sinful human beings are made of. And he said, yes, but what if Peter, James, and John get tired? What if the people who come after them forget? What if way down in the 21st century, people just don't tell others about you? Haven't you made any other plans? And Jesus answered, I have no other plans. I'm counting on them. And 21 centuries later, Jesus still has no other plans. In verses 47 and 48, Jesus emphasized with those 11 three facts about sharing his gospel. First of all, who they and who we are. He said in verse 48, you are witnesses. In Greek, the word translated witness is martus, the word from which we get our English word martyr. So we are to go as martyrs, ready to tell despite the cost, since to the cause of Christ we have pledged our lives. He also talked about where to go. Jesus said to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem, and I take this to mean we're to start right here at home, in our families, our neighborhoods, this community, our workplaces, our schools. We're to begin right here where we live, that is, in our Jerusalem. And then finally, what we are to say. Again, as Jesus said in verse 47, we must tell that repentance for the forgiveness of sins is available in his name. So these are the very fundamentals of the good news. A 20th century Bible commentator named Harry Ironside said, repentance is the recognition of the disease that is destroying us. When we admit our sinfulness, we are glad to avail ourselves of the salvation God has provided. Then we are ready to trust Christ and his forgiveness. Ironside is right. Sin is that deadly disease every person has, and it destroys us physically, spiritually, and eternally. But it's just as Peter said and then urged in Acts 2.38, repent 
and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So fundamentally, this is what Jesus came to earth to do, to make sinners aware of sin and its deadly consequences, and to provide the way for those sins and consequences to be canceled and taken away by his nailing of them to the cross. This we are to tell, and this we are to bear witness of, because we are the master's only plan. And then fourth and last, one more conviction, the residency of the Holy Spirit. The risen Christ speaking to his disciples said in verse 49, I'm going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city, that is Jerusalem, until you've been clothed with power from on high. So in hindsight, Jesus was referring, of course, to the promised Holy Spirit who came in power on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Clearly, his disciples were not to proceed without the Spirit. He said to wait for the Spirit to come with power from on high. So the Holy Spirit was to be the enabling power of their future mission. And this is as true for us nearly 2,000 years later as it was for them. For Christians, the Holy Spirit is God's gracious gift of himself, enabling us to live as Christ followers in this evil world. So God gives us his Holy Spirit to fulfill two basic purposes. First, at baptism, to give us new spiritual life by raising our dead in sin human spirits to new life, which is an instantaneous act. And second, to make us more and more like Christ by renewing our hearts and minds, which is a lifelong process. So our proper response to the Holy Spirit ought to be threefold. First, to acknowledge Him as God's gift at our baptism. Second, to understand as best we can from the Scriptures what He is working in us to accomplish. And third, to cooperate as fully as we can with His inward work. I think this is what Paul meant in Philippians 2, 12 and 13, where he said, My dear friends, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That is, make it visible outwardly. For it is God who works in you, that is, through the Holy Spirit, causing you to will and to act according to His good purpose. So the salvation that God works in us through the Holy Spirit, we are to work out, giving evidence of it in our daily living. I think we could say that the Holy Spirit is Jesus' issued equipment for us, His followers, and we must learn to yield to and depend on the Spirit's inward work. Well, to conclude this morning, I believe these four convictions which Jesus stressed with His 11 disciples are as important for us as they were for them. Let's review them quickly. First, the reliability of the Scriptures. If the Scriptures are indeed the fully relevant, reliable Word of God as Jesus treated them and taught them to be, then shouldn't we also regard them as God's words for life? Shouldn't we strive to learn and to know them? Shouldn't we obey them as carefully as we can? Shouldn't we parents work to instill them in our kids? 
And shouldn't we be tutored by them in today's issues? For example, regarding the bitterly contentious abortion issue sweeping our nation, does the Bible say anything about God's position? Certainly does. As creator, we discover that God infuses all human life, both preborn and postborn, with the dignity and sanctity of his image. All human life is sacred, and God regards the taking of innocent life as murder, and so should we. But furthermore, the Bible reveals him to be the God of hope, grace, compassion, and forgiveness, who desires his people to be, and you may have heard this before, today's help and tomorrow's hope to those who are in the throes of problem pregnancies. So as our non-biblical culture morphs into anti-biblical, our stand on the Bible's reliability becomes ever more pressing. To his father in John 17, 17, Jesus said, your word is truth. Still is. Second, the priority of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. In a culture ever more opposed to all things Christian, we disciples must faithfully keep the main thing, the main thing. And the main thing is the good news, the gospel of Christ. We will no doubt find ourselves assailed on many fronts as we strive to maintain biblical positions on various issues. And this we must do, firmly grasping God's truth so that we don't end up living by the lies of a godless culture. But the main thing to which we must faithfully hold fast is, as Paul said, Christ died for sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Our biblical positions on the pressing issues of these times are very important and highly significant, but only this one. Our stand on the crucifixion and the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ will impact somebody's eternity. We must faithfully keep the gospel the main thing. Third, the necessity of telling others about Jesus. While that legend I shared a few moments ago is just that, a legend, the fact remains Jesus still has no other plans for propagating his gospel to lost sinners. It's up to you and it's up to me. And doubtless all of us can and should and must do better. Perhaps our prayer this morning ought to be the words of a simple little one-line chorus, which happens to be number 449 in our hymn book. Lord, lay some soul upon my heart and love that soul through me. And may I always do my part to win that soul for thee. And bear in mind that a sin-bound foe may well be that soul. And finally, the residency of the Holy Spirit. In the midst of life's raging storms, it is natural to long for and ask for God's gentle, calming, strengthening presence. To Old Testament Israel in Isaiah 41 verse 10, God promised saying, do not fear for I am with you. Do not be dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. 
I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. But for us New Testament Christians living in this age, God does even more. He gives us himself in the person of the Holy Spirit living within. And according to Galatians 5, 22 and 23, that Holy Spirit yields the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And these are the very things we need to be able to face, endure, and overcome the ravages of the gathering storms. So as a Christ follower, how prepared are you for these turbulent times? This is decision time, and we have an invitation hymn this morning, number 602. I invite you to stand with me as we sing that uh, hymn. This morning, the first question is, are you a Christ follower? And if you are not, you surely can become one even right now by coming forward, confessing Christ as your Lord, repenting of your sin, meeting him in the watery graves of Christian baptism. We invite you to come. Perhaps something in this sermon has touched a nerve or stirred a thought that needs to be shared publicly or if not publicly, right where you are. This is a time to respond to the truth of God. Number 602.